Good morning, it is great to see you guys this morning. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you have your Bibles, follow along with me, beginning in verse 13. Paul writes, beginning in verse 13, that food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Therefore flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you for the amazing cost that you did pay for our redemption. We thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, for his death on a cross, that we could have a relationship and be reconciled to you. The entirety of our lives, the entirety of the trajectory of our lives could be forever changed on the basis of his death and his resurrection. And Father, I pray this morning as we look at a relationship with you, Father, I pray that you would help us to have a sense of just exactly how we're to walk and what you have. And in your name we pray. Amen. Technical difficulties. We good? Can you hear me? All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being patient. Sorry, a few issues uh, this week. We had a giant event on Thursday night called Country Fair. Some of you guys might have been here the night before Halloween. We had hundreds of kids and people in this very room, and so this room looked nothing like it does now, which also meant there were a few technical things that might have occurred from Thursday night. So thank you guys for being patient and bearing with us. But here's what I want to do. We're going to talk about the topic of sexuality for you guys this morning, all right? Sexuality. So here's a question I want to kind of begin with as I ask you guys as we get launched off. I want to ask you guys this. When was the first time you guys ever heard or had a meaningful conversation about sex? All right. Who had that conversation with you? Where was it? Uh, who, when was it? All right. I'm sure you guys remember that conversation like it was scalded onto your memory. All right. Because the reality was for many of us, it was probably the most awkward conversation we've ever had in our entire lives. All right. Uh, I'll tell you guys for myself, my parents saw that moment coming. All right. And they invited my aunt into town who is a medical professional. She was a nurse. All right. And so they outsourced the conversation to her. All right. So she came with diagrams, textbooks. It was like a human anatomy lesson. It was awful. All right. Uh, I was for years scarred of the opposite sex, and I was scarred of the whole medical profession. I haven't gotten past that yet, all right? But it did not go well for me, all right? Uh, I remember, too, uh, I had a good friend of mine who was the middle child in her family, all right? The conversation that her parents about had about sex with her older si- sister went so bad, produced so many questions that they decided to outsource the conversation with her, the middle child in the family, to Disney, all right? It was a Disney trip. There was a birds and bees exhibit and somehow some kind of movie. I'm not sure how, what was happening here at Disney, all right? But it was how she first heard about sex, all right? So she walked out not so much scarred, but she walked out absolutely confused, all right? 
And a Disney trip was absolutely ruined from that point forward. Uh, also, I'll tell you guys, for some of our parents, they outsourced the conversation, all right? For some of our parents, they had the courage to go directly at the conversation, all right? A good friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends in college, his dad every year would take him on a fishing trip, all right? And every year, this was his highlight of his year, all right? This moment getting off just with his dad, going fishing, having a whole weekend together. He absolutely loved it, would look forward to it every year until one year his dad brought a spiral notebook, some matte pencils as he was an artist and began over that fishing trip to draw some pictures and begin explaining to him how the human body works and what sex is, all right? He was mortified, all right? In fact, every year from that point forward when he'd go fishing, he was terrified that his dad was going to bring up more conversations. And that highlight of his year, the very favorite memory he ever had with his dad became forever ruined because of that sex conversation, all right? I'll tell you guys, even in our own home, we have a girl who's about four years old and a boy who's 18 months years old. And we haven't figured out even how to talk about this topic, all right? Our little girl will actually refer to our little boy's uh, guy as his little peanut, all right? Now, we've tried to explain to her the actual words. We've tried to not make it strange or weird, all right? But how in the world do you talk about the topic, all right? Obviously, they're not really ready for a full conversation, all right? But for every single one of us, we don't know how to talk about the topic at all, all right? Even Blake Jennings, who's great with his words, God bless him, was trying to promote our sex mini-series here that's going to happen this Sunday and next Sunday in the main service last week. And as he was trying to highlight for you guys, you students, the relevance of the topic, what he said was, it's going to be incredibly applicable, all right? If the sex talk is too applicable, we probably have a little bit of a problem, right? We'll talk about that, all right? But even Blake, in trying to highlight and address it, didn't really hit it dead on, right? It's kind of a, oh, maybe I should go back and fix that kind of thing, right? Sex is really hard for us to know how to talk about it. It is very much at the forefront of the entire conversation that's going on, culturally speaking. But for every single one of us, whether we've been in the conversation, whether we think back to the first conversation we ever had, for some of us, we were absolutely scarred. For some of us, we were absolutely confused, all right? And so if we can kind of walk through this Sunday and next Sunday, and if I cannot add to you being scarred and I can add, not add to you being confused, it will be a success, all right? And I'll say, too, the other thing I'd say as the church ventures into this topic, my hope this morning and my hope even next week as we continue this topic is to not be yet another voice that has also condemned you, all right? I don't want to confuse you, I don't want to scar you, and I don't want to condemn you. Statistics do tell us, and we do know, that 65% of high school seniors, when they graduate, have had sexual intercourse. 23% of those high school seniors, in addition to that 65%, have had oral sex, all right? So we know, statistics speaking, that every single one of us, especially in a room this size, every single one of us has made mistakes in this arena, all right? I don't need to tell you that. Not to mention the 90% have had an experience with and are addicted to pornography. Every single one of us has had and has made mistakes in this arena, And my hope this morning and my hope next week is not to be another voice that adds to the condemnation and the criticism that you guys feel and a a guilty conscience that feels already incredibly heavy. The reality for some of you guys too is not just that you guys have made mistakes, but in some cases for some of you guys, mistakes were made to you. You were not the perpetrator, but for some of you guys, you were the victim. And so when we talk about sex, there's all kinds of stuff that comes up in your past. There's all kinds of stuff that comes up that you feel guilty about, that you struggle with. Every single one of us, we've stepped into a culture that is sexually saturated. And for every single one of us, we've made mistakes in this arena. And so as we walk through this topic this morning and next week, I don't want to be another voice that just condemns, that scars, or confuses you. Really what I want to do this morning, especially this morning, is I want to show you really uh, not how low we've gotten in terms of what we see sex to be. 
But really what I want to show you as God intended sex to be is I want to show you and elevate for you what sex really is. I want to give you a sense of just how special, how unique, how what a wonderful gift that God has granted to you and I, and how not just that we need to resurrect it from the depths that we see it in our culture today, but I also want to expand its scope for you. The sex is way more than what you and I think it is. And what I want to do for you guys as we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning is show you just what God intended sex to be. It's very much in the conversation of our culture, but our culture has no idea really what God intended this thing to be. And so what I want to do for many of us is I want to try to resurrect it and let you guys see exactly what God intended this thing to be. And as we jump into 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning, Paul is going to begin in verse 13. And what's fascinating as he begins here is that he's going to speak to the Corinthians. And what he's going to say to the Corinthians is not his own words, but it's their words. Verse 13 in chapter 6 of the book of 1 Corinthians is actually not Paul's words, but he's quoting them. He's going to begin with what they understood sex to be. Here is what the Corinthians had said. They had said that food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but they had said that God would do away with both of them. That as they thought about sex, they had an understanding about sex that was so far from what God had. In fact, if you think about the book of 1 Corinthians, or frankly, the city of Corinth, you could really picture Corinth to be, in a sense, an ancient version of New York City and Vegas combined. All right. Corinth had all the sceniness sexually of what Vegas has, but had all the economic affluence of what New York City has. Corinth was situated geographically in the travel route so much so that everyone was traveling through it and it became very much a commercial epicenter, but also is famous for the Temple of Aphrodite. Uh, In fact, uh, this past summer, we had sent two teams on a mission trip to Greece. Uh, We've been talking about those trips and those missions opportunities and have a picture. I'm not going to show it to you guys, but have some pictures because we actually had an opportunity to travel and hike around the ancient city of Corinth. All right. In fact, at one point, you could walk through the market area and then you could venture up onto an incredible uh, height of the mountain looking out on the whole coast, the whole area of Greece at the highest place there. And at the highest place in the city of Corinth was, uh, was where the temple was and they had a thousand prostitutes that served in this temple. You see, for Corinth, they had seemingly to them an incredibly elevated view of sexuality. It was incredibly special. It was the focal point of their culture, but they had entirely missed what God intended sex to be. So you can be in a sexually saturated culture, but completely miss what God intended sex to be. That's where the Corinthians stood. They had said for them that food was for the stomach and the stomach was for food, that ultimately as they thought about sex, it was something that was very low and very narrow. For them, what sex was, was just simply the satisfaction of sexual organs. All right. Just like you get hungry and you want, to, you want to eat something or just like you get thirsty and you want to drink something for the Corinthians, sex is simply the satisfaction of a physical drive, a physical urge, and that was all it was. It was nothing more than that for them. And so you could walk into a temple where you could uh, uh, engage in prostitution and, and in a sense for them what was worship, all right? It, it was not at all, there was a huge divide for them between sexuality and spirituality. And in some ways it actually had unioned them, but in their union, they had really reduced what sex really was, all right? It's fascinating. Soviet Union leader, former leader, uh, Lenin was known as for saying this about sex. He said, there's no more difference in sexuality than having a drink of water. There's no more difference in sexuality than having a drink of water. I want to ask you guys this morning, what do you think sex is? What's the difference between sex and literally having something to drink? Is there any difference whatsoever between sex and getting a great meal? All right. What is sex? Is sex merely the satisfaction of a physical appetite and drive or is it something so much more? 
The Corinthians, what they had done is they had demeaned sex. They had also narrowed it as they saw it simply just as food being for the stomach and the stomach being for food. They'd seen it simply as a sexual drive, sexual organs that needed to be satisfied, and that's all that it was. And in doing that, they had really reduced it. They had really missed exactly what God intended sex to be. It's fascinating as you kind of look at this topic that it's not just that they saw there to be an incredible analogy with food and stomach, but also notice what they say next. They said that God will do away with both of them. That for the Corinthians, as they thought about the physical body, they recognized that the physical body was something they thought that God would do away with, that he would utterly trash. And so in their mindset, if God is going to do away with the food and stomach, then it doesn't matter what you eat and it doesn't matter even bigger picture what you do at all with the physical body. It was irrelevant. For the, for the Corinthians, in their cultural view of the body, they had seen the body, frankly, as something that was bad, as a vestige and as a prison for our souls, that God one day would release our souls from our bodies because the body was bad. It wasn't just that the body was bad, but the body was irrelevant to spirituality. There was no connection between sexuality and spirituality for the Corinthians. They were completely irrelevant, disconnected topics. And because of that, I'm going to argue to you guys, it's not just that their view of sex was too low, but their view of sex was also too narrow. Because there is incredible connection between our sexuality and our spirituality. There is a incredible connection between your gender and who you are. You cannot get away from your gender. You cannot get away from your sexuality. You are hardwired as, as an aspect of who you are. And despite what the Corinthians believed about the body, they actually frankly believed wrongly about the body. I want you guys to think about what you do with stuff that you know you're going to throw away. How do you treat it? I'll tell you guys, you get a new iPhone, you get a new laptop, and what do you do with your old stuff, right? Uh, You just toss it to Walmart, you toss it in the trash, or you just store it in your closet for years and you never think about it again, right? I'll tell you guys, even for us in our home, there's a certain cycle, not just with our electronics, but even with our t-shirts, all right? When we first get a t-shirt, it goes into upper echelon status, all right? It's reserved for the most special of usage, all right? We wash it, but we don't fully dry it. We put it on a hanger so that it lasts as long as possible, all right? But at some point in the cycle of one of our t-shirts, all right, it moves to the next rung, which is not special status, but lawn mowing status, all right? It's what I use when I go mow a lawn. It's what I use when I go paint. But at some point, even shirts move and devolve beyond and below that, all right, when they're headed to the trash, all right? But there's a one last step before they head to the trash that we reserve for their special usage because we cut them up and we put them in a bin as laundry rags, all right, to wipe up and to deal with the very things that we don't even think are worthy of a paper towel, right? A paper towel is too special for what we might have to wipe up. And so those rags are what we use to wipe up uh, dog uh, excrement, all right, poop, whatever it has to be, all right? It is for the worst kinds of things that we don't even want to see again, all right? See, when you're throwing things away, you really have no care what they wipe up, what they deal with, and what they process, all right? Because when you're throwing something away, you don't give a rip about what happens to it, right? And for the Corinthians, as they looked at the physical body, in their minds, it was something that God was going to do away with. So why does it matter how you treat the physical body? Spirituality for them was completely divorced from bodily life. There was no connection between soul and body for the Corinthians. And yet that's not how God has created you and I. He's created us soul and spirit. He's created us material and immaterial. And those two aspects of our humanity are intricately woven together and they cannot be divorced from one another. All semesters, we've been talking about different topics in our series on culture. We've been saying that you cannot divide the sacred from the secular, right? We talked about money. We talked about technology. We talked about social justice. We talked about uh, the arts. And we've said over and over again every week, if you've not noticed, right, there's no divide between what is sacred and what is secular. 
As we think about the physical body and we think about sexuality, what I want to say to you guys this morning is there's no divide between soul and spirit and body, right? There's no divide between the material aspect of us and the immaterial aspect of us. God has created us both material and immaterial, and he will even resurrect us in the future as material and immaterial. All right. Your body is not just a prison for your soul. All right. Your body is not the problem. God created your physical body and he created your soul. They're both good. And so neither are necessarily the problem. Neither are what you need to get away from. And yet both are very much a part of how he's called you and I to live and how he's called you and I to walk. There is relevance and there is connection between our sexuality and our spirituality. I want you guys to notice exactly how Paul corrects them. Notice what he says beginning in verse uh, 14. He says, uh, or verse 13, he says, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Notice now Paul steps in. He's going to correct them here in the second half of verse 13. And he says, yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. That there is a connection between the physical body and what God has called us to in terms of morality. There's a connection between our bodily life and our spirituality. There's a connection between our bodily life and our morality. And so Paul says the body is not for immorality. In fact, it is for the Lord. There's a connection between our bodily life and our relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord is for the body. One last little element there he adds on, saying that, hey, God cares for, he is pro-body, he's not anti-body, he doesn't view the body as irrelevant to who you and I are. And he goes on further and he says, uh, in verse uh, 14, he says, now God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. Paul's going to say that there is a resurrection coming that is not just an immaterial resurrection of our souls, but is a material resurrection of our body. That what God is going to do in the future is not just wipe away and do away with our bodies, as the Corinthians had said, but he will resurrect the body itself. And if he's going to resurrect the body in the future, then it has value in the present and it is not at all irrelevant to what God desires for you and I. Which is why he concludes this entire section in verse 20 by saying, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. There is relevance between sexuality and spirituality. They are not disconnected terms. And as you think about sexuality, I want to highlight for you guys that ultimately what I think sexuality is, is a holistic exchange of whole persons. What an sexual experience was intended to be by God was a holistic exchange between whole persons. It's a giving away of our entire selves, not just our bodies, not just a sexual appetite, but a giving of our entire selves to someone else who's also whole. All right. If sex is intended to be a holistic exchange of whole persons, then it is not something that fixes broken people. If sex is a holistic exchange between whole persons, then sex does not fix broken people. Sex does not complete incomplete people. Sex does not fill empty people. Sex does not make secure, insecure people. Sex is not the solution to those challenges and those things that we all wrestle with, all right? Frankly, outside of the context that God will call us to experience it, it will only make those things worse. What God intended sex to be was a holistic exchange of whole persons, a giving of our entire selves away. It's fascinating. One of my favorite authors, his name is Lewis Smedes, and he says this about sex. He says that you and I cannot take our bodies to bed with someone and park our souls outside in the car to wait. There's this idea that I can take my body somewhere in a sexual experience, but then the rest of my life can wait on hold outside. 
And some of you to say, no, no, that's not, that's not how it works. You cannot do one thing with your body and expect that your soul will not have implications with it. There is incredible relevance and connection between sexuality and spirituality. They are totally connected concepts, all right? Another great book, a lady named Jean Twenge wrote a book called Why Today's Young People Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever. And this is what she says about your generation. She says the most striking shift in teenage and 20-something sexual behavior in the last decade is the disconnect, catch this, the disconnect between sex and emotional involvement. Speaking to your generation, she says this, here's what we've seen happen more than anything in the last 10 years. That there's now an ongoing experience of sex that is completely devoid and disconnected from any sense of emotional connection, involvement, or engagement. All right. 20 years ago, people would say, say, hey, well, if I love her, then surely we can go ahead and have sex even if we've not gotten married yet. Surely, right? Because I love her. I'm committed. I love. I care deeply about her. So why can't we engage sexually yet outside of marriage? People don't ask that question today. That's not the presenting question for most people today because people don't care whether there's love or not. In your generation, the thing that we're seeing more than anything else is that sex is being experienced completely devoid and disconnected from emotional involvement. We're taking our bodies somewhere and we're parking our heart and our soul outside as completely disconnected realities in a whole different kind of world, right? It's fascinating uh, that you and I, I think in many ways, have missed really what sex was intended to be. We've missed what it is and we've missed how to go about it, which is why we also are beginning to miss who we're supposed to experience it with. Ultimately, I think we've bought into a lie in which our culture has lowered our sense of the value and the sanctity and the specialness of sex. And they've narrowed it in on us to be something that is just about a physical experience. And we've bought in that lie, which is why our souls and our lives seem wrecked. Sex is not something that fixes broken people. It's not something that makes secure, insecure people. It's not something that completes incomplete people. And when we pursue it for those reasons to seemingly fix, complete, fill us, we walk out, out of it completely all the more broken, all the more alone, all the more empty. And ultimately, we've missed not just what it is, but we've missed how we're to experience it. And lastly, I'd argue we've also missed who we're to experience it with. That sex is intended not just to be a holistic exchange, but is also intended to be experienced with someone uniquely. Which is why Gene Twinge will say also, and I think this is fascinating, in the NBC People poll, almost half of young teens said that their sexual contact, contact was outside of a relationship. I told you guys when we began this morning that 60% of high school seniors have had sexual intercourse, all right? Sorry, 65%. 23% of those, in addition to that, have had oral sex, all right? So almost 90% of high school seniors, when they graduate, have had some kind of sexual experience. Every single one of us has made mistakes in this arena, all right? What's fascinating to me, what really what I want to drive your attention to, though, is to notice who we're making those mistakes with, all right? She'll say that, that 60% of high school juniors or over half had done it outside of a relationship. All right. We were making those mistakes as a generation with someone that we weren't even in a relationship with. All right. So up their percentage and she'll say that a 2001 study found that 60% of high school juniors had had sex, had done it with someone who's no more than a friend. <laughs> so 60% had had someone who was a friend or less to be a part of their partner in that experience. We're taking our bodies wherever with whoever. And the results are catastrophic for us. It's not about love for many of us in our culture today. It's just about getting an appetite and a drive fulfilled and satisfied. And we're missing the entirety of what God called sex to be. We're missing it.
Because ultimately what God called sex to be was a holistic exchange between whole persons. And also it was to be a union of intimacy and commitment. All right. We've missed not just the what and the why, but we've missed the who as well. I want to give you guys a sense. If you guys want to flip, you can, you can leave your finger in Corinthians. We probably won't necessarily come back to it, but I want you guys to flip over to Genesis chapter two. I want to give you guys a sense for Adam and Eve, what their relationship looked like and what God had created and called them to experience. Genesis chapter two uh, gives us a sense of really the first marriage, the first union of man and woman. God created Adam and Eve. He created them male and he created them female. He created them in his image, both of them. It is in his image that both were created male and female, all right? And in that kind of experience, then we find Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. If you guys want to follow along with me, beginning in verse 24. Actually, sorry, beginning in verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh of that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. When God creates Eve, notice the relationship that Adam and Eve had together. Literally, Eve comes from the rib of Adam. It comes literally from his side. And then when, he, when God brings Eve to him, Adam says, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He knows her intimately. He's incredibly familiar with her because she came from him, all right? Literally, the text is saying that he knew her as well as he knew himself. The kind of knowledge they had of one another, the kind of familiarity they had with one another was absolutely off the charts, all right? In fact, so much so that notice the text will say in verse 25 that the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. What we're going to find in the the aftermath of sex is they're going to be naked with one another. There's going to be knowledge and incredible vulnerability with one another, all right? Not just a vulnerability that was skin deep because they took their clothes off, they saw one another. But a vulnerability that that had two individuals who knew one another absolutely intimately, knew each other inside and out. And they were absolutely vulnerable with each other, not just to a level of being skin deep, but being soul deep with one another. There was incredible knowledge of one another, incredible familiarity with one another. And so in that deep knowledge came a real sense of familiarity and vulnerability with one another. See, when you and I have, we experience this all the time, we can have incredible vulnerability with one another, but absolutely no knowledge of one another, right? Uh, even Friday night, we go trick-or-treating, all right? We, we get a little girl dressed up in a Cinderella outfit, all right? She's bellow the ball, doing the whole princess thing, all right? Our little 18-month boy is like a, a crazy-looking panda, all right? I don't know what was going on there, all right? But it was awesome, all right? And so we're going around the neighborhood having a great time trick-or-treating, but there's a few houses that we walk up to, and I'm like, I have no idea what's about to ensue in the next two minutes, right? And there's crazy sickles and death-looking people. I mean, just crazy, all right? I'm going, walking up with my four-year-old going, I have no idea where they're going to try to scare the ever-loving stuff out of us, all right? I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to have to turn and run or protect her. I don't know what's going on. There was incredible vulnerability, but there was no knowledge as to what was going to happen. There was no knowledge even of these people, all right? And when you're in that spot, it's absolutely terrifying, right? To be utterly vulnerable, but to have no knowledge. That makes for an amazing haunted house, right? (laughs) When you feel absolutely scared out of your mind with no idea what's about to happen, but it's thrilling and it's fun for a haunted house, right? But for sex, it's a whole different thing, right? In sex, if you have vulnerability before someone, but you don't have knowledge, that's not fun at all. That's a haunted house. That's not fun though. That's absolutely terrifying. To be utterly vulnerable with someone, but to not know them, 
And to have knowledge that doesn't match the level of vulnerability, that's not fun. It's fun in a haunted house, but in sex, it's terrifying. And to take the haunted house environment and take it into someone's sex life is not at all a redemptive, fun, fulfilling kind of experience whatsoever. And yet for so many of us and so many in our culture, that's what sex has become. A place of incredible vulnerability without any sense of knowledge. You take that up a notch when you don't add any sense of commitment and you have something that is utterly broken and utterly terrifying, all right? It's not at all what God intended sex to be. It's not at all what he imagined. It's not at all what he wanted us to experience. It's not at all what he wanted us to walk into. Because for Adam and Eve, they would have a sense of deep knowledge with one another that led to incredible familiarity and vulnerability. But they would also have a real deep sense of commitment to one another. Notice the text again, verse, chapter 2, verse uh, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. For God and for Adam and Eve, as they walked into this relationship, there was an incredible sense of knowledge, but there was also an incredible sense of commitment to one another. They would leave the commitment they had with father and mother, and they would commit themselves to one another. Another word for commitment is love, all right? As you look through the Old Testament, the Hebrew word hesed, which denotes God's love, literally denotes his commitment, all right? Even when the nation of Israel was an absolute pain in the rump for him, all right? His hesed was a binding commitment he had made to them. His love denoted not so much an emotional affection, but a commitment to them. I think for you and I in a Hollywood-starved, Hollywood-saturated culture, we've so romanticized what love is, we've missed the point that it's a commitment, I love even when I don't feel like it, right? Because sometimes the emotions and the affections aren't necessarily there because we're still sinful and we're still broken. But what love was from Genesis 2 and on, what we see God do with the nation of Israel, what we see God model with his church for what marriage is intended to be, is a commitment of a promise that is extended to one another. And it's in the basis and the safety and the security of that promise that then vulnerability, knowledge, and commitment all match. Right? See, in the midst of that kind of commitment creates a sense of safety and security that you don't have at all apart from that sense of commitment. Adam and Eve would have that, and so they would be joined with one another, and they would become one flesh. They would have a sexual union and a sexual experience with one another that had come on the heels of and in the aftermath of incredible knowledge, incredible commitment, incredible familiarity, incredible safety and security. So you remove any one of those pieces and you have something that's really, really unstable. (laughs) If you remove knowledge and all you have is vulnerability, you have a haunted house, all right? Uh, If you remove commitment and all you have is vulnerability and an opportunity of an experience of a union, what you have is test driving a car, right? Which is fun sometimes, right? To have all the experience without the commitment or the knowledge, which is why you try the car out, which is why I laugh hysterically when people talk about the need to test drive a relationship, sexually speaking, to know whether we are going to be sexually compatible or not. That is a lie that is being fed to us that is absolutely ridiculous, right? Let me just say if you enter into a relationship where you are physically attracted to someone, let me assure you. <laughs> Let me assure you, if God will move you guys to marriage, you will be sexually compatible. It ain't that crazy. It ain't that difficult to make work, all right? Seriously, all right? There's a lot more things you should worry about whether they're going to work or not or whether they're going to fit or not, and that's not one of them, all right? There is no need to sexually test drive the car, so to speak, in the midst of a relationship that's moving to marriage. You don't need to have experience in that arena to be able to make a commitment towards someone as you look toward marriage. It's not necessary. There are other things that you should worry about that are way more significant, that are way more volatile than whether that thing's going to work out or not. 
Trust me, he designed it so that you would be sexually compatible if he's going to move you to that place. So you don't have to have that experience to know. It's going to come on the heels of knowledge and commitment that will lead to the kind of familiarity and vulnerability, the kind of safety and the security that only God could imagine and create and call you and I into because it's going to be in that environment that sex will flourish and be all that God intended it to be. When you remove knowledge or you remove vulnerability or you remove commitment, you end up with something that is incredibly unstable and frankly has become for many of us a solution to fix our brokenness, a solution to fix our insecurity, a solution to fix our loneliness, and it only leaves us more broken, more lonely, and more insecure than ever. In many ways, we begin to really lower what sex is intended to be. And what I want to do this morning is not be another voice that condemns confuses or scars you. I want to be a voice as we look at the text that really hopefully it begins to elevate what sex is meant to be. We've really written it off and let it be something that was way cheaper and way more meaningless than it was ever intended to be. And what I want to do kind of as we kind of look at it is to give you guys a little bit more of a sense of exactly then what was sex intended to be? What were the purposes of sex? All right. Let me give you guys a few quick examples of a few purposes for sex. All right. If this is what is intended to be a holistic exchange of whole persons, right? And if it was intended to be a union uh, in intimacy with commitment between two people who are coming together, then ultimately, if that is what you have happening, then what was it meant to produce? All right. First, I'll say to you guys, I think one of the first things it was meant to produce was enjoyment and pleasure. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) In the right context as God created it, it is incredibly enjoyable, incredibly pleasurable and stable. All right. In fact, in the healthy marriage, it is often a barometer to the marriage. All right, it is often a place where that marriage comes and finds pleasure with one another and finds even more sense of intimacy, even more sense of commitment, even more knowledge of one another. It only helps feed that and what marriage was intended to be as you step towards it. Obviously speaking, birds and the bees, pollination at Disney, all right, it was also intended to be procreation, right? This is part of how God fulfills through Adam and Eve, the Genesis 1 uh, verses 27, 28 charge to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. This is part of how he does it. Let me give you guys two other things that are quite a bit more abstract, all right? First is I think that sex provides an opportunity to reflect the unity of the Trinity, all right? Sex provides an opportunity to reflect the unity of the Trinity. What do I mean by that? That in the Trinitarian relationship, what you have is you have incredible diversity and yet unity. And what you have in sex happening is incredible diversity that's coming together in a unifying experience. And it's a picture of the very nature and the very relationship of God. And it's not just a picture of his relationship, but it's also a picture of his relationship with the church itself. That what is the church? It's at Ephesians 5. It is the bride of Jesus Christ. And the bride itself is an incredible composition of incredible diversity that has found unity in its relationship with Jesus Christ. And what sex is, what marriage is, is a picture that is highlighting the very nature of God and the very nature of his relationship with his church, his body that we're a part of. And that what sex is providing to our culture is a picture of unity in the midst of diversity where there is incredible intimacy and commitment, all right? Which is so not often what we see in our culture as it's being presented to us. That what sex was intended to be, we get an incredible picture as it's lived out as God intended it toward the kind of unity and the diversity that we see in the very nature of God and the very nature of his union with the church as well. Most talks typically end in this spot, all right? Most talks to a college student audience typically end right about here. God created something that was amazing, all right? Something that, frankly, will be an amazing gift and experience that you can walk into in a later day, all right? And they'll say, that, hey, it's a great picture of diversity. It's a great picture of the nature of God, the nature of the church. And they typically end here. And the result for you is just wait and burn in your passions and hang on, right? 
basically the, the takeaway for you guys, typically for most messages on sex that the church has given to a single audience that is not yet married, that basically the takeaway is this, repress the sexual drive you have, bury it as far as you can until that day that you get married. And when you get married, then flip the switch of sexuality on and everything's going to be okay. Which frankly is a travesty to how you've been created and what God's called you to experience. The only takeaway for you this morning is not repression. <laughs> it's not just to deny this piece of who you are. It is you've been hardwired in this kind of way, right? And to repress it and to deny it is missing the boat of ultimately all that God has for you in this phase of your life. So I, I think many times the church is basically what we do with this message on sexuality to a single audience. It would be as if I would parade you guys out into the foyer, all right? Where I would have an amazing spread of a buffet, the likes of which you've never imagined, all right? I would go on and on about how the creator of this spread, the chef, who was the most amazing chef we could find in College Station, has provided an amazing gift of a meal for you guys. I would parade you guys through it. I would highlight it for you guys. And you guys who have a, a time body clock that's all messed up because of daylight savings, who are already hungry, right? Would walk in, right? Uh, your mouths would begin to water. You'd begin to salivate. Your stomach would begin to churn like mine is right now because I'm already hungry. All right. And now imagine if I did that to you guys, I would pray over the meal and I'd say to you guys, the day that you guys graduate and the day that you can pay for this is the day that I'll serve it to you. How frustrated would you be with me? Right? How much would you just want to physically abuse me on the spot? Right? Or just never come back to grace ever again. Right? Well, frankly, that's exactly what we typically do with singles when it comes to a message on sexuality. We parade you out and say, hey, look at this amazing gift that God has created and provided for you. Good luck for a few more years until you get to enter into that, right? In the meantime, just be incredibly hungry. (laughs) Think about nothing else, right? And the fact that it's taken away from you, you just think about it all the time. And you're wondering when you're going to get to actually have that meal, so to speak. And then we really miss the mark. And what I want to do for you guys this morning as we end is I want to give you guys some practical ideas of how you move forward in this whole arena beyond just simply repression, right? Beyond simply trying to divorce yourself of this whole piece of who you are until a later day, all right? How do we move forward? What do you and I do today, all right? If you're not married, if you're still in the single uh, arena of life, all right? How do you and I walk today? I'm gonna give you guys a few basic ideas. First is this, uh, as we begin this morning, let me just say for so many of us, we've made mistakes in this arena, right? And the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done is that it does not matter where you and I have gone. It doesn't matter what we've looked at. It doesn't matter what we've experienced. It doesn't matter the level of regret or shame that we've had. The death of Jesus Christ paid the penalty for those sins in the past, the ones that you'll make in the present, and the ones that you'll make in the future. The death of Christ, the grace of God always extends over and above anything that you've done, imagined of doing, or will do. That is the amazing richness of uh, scandal of the grace of God and the cross of Christ is that it pays the penalty for anything that you've ever done. It always outruns your sin. It always can outrun your guilt. And so for many of you guys, I want to say to y'all in the midst of whatever mistakes you've made in your past, they do not determine your future. They don't. The cross of Christ not only pays for the penalty of those sins, but it also provides you the spirit of God that begins to provide an ability to resist sin and begin to walk in a new kind of way. Some of you guys just started walking with God in college. And so as you look at the topic of dating, you look at the topic of sexuality, you were terrified because you remember who you were and what you did before God got a hold of you. Some of you avoid dating. You avoid a relationship because you're so scared that you're going to mess up. And what I want to say to you guys is experience the forgiveness of Christ. Really let it sink in. 
really realize that he has said, hey, you are free of your past. And yet we seem to hold our past closer and tighter to us than Christ himself holds it when he was the one that we offended to begin with, right? Why can't we let go? Why can't we realize that he died and he resurrected to remove that as far as the east is from the west? Yesterday does not determine today and does not determine tomorrow. Your past mistakes do not determine your future. They do not determine your destiny. What God can do as he works in your lives is to bring a whole new chapter as you move forward. It does not determine your future. So stop being scared. Let your past go. Trust that God has redeemed it and he can free you from it and he can write a new chapter by the grace of God, by the mercy of God, and by the power of his spirit. Some of you guys, that's where you need to start and stop today. Some of you may not have a relationship at all with Jesus Christ. And so for you guys, the starting spot today is to enter into that relationship with one who has cleansed you, who has forgiven you, who's offered himself to you so that you can have a relationship and be reconciled with him. The one who loved you and knew your sins and knew your transgressions and yet gave his life anyways and is offering himself even today. So for some of you guys, whether you don't know Jesus Christ or whether you do know him today, I want to give you a fresh reminder of the forgiveness that he's offered to every single one of us. That he's paid the penalty for those sins. They do not have to determine us. They do not sit on our resume any longer. And it is Satan himself that lies, loves to stand before us and bring constant reminder constant accusation of our past. That is not the spirit of God. That is Satan himself who is constantly attacking, constantly accusing, constantly trying to discourage you from what tomorrow could be. All right, that's not how God works. That's how the enemy works. And the way that we trust him, the way that we resist that is realizing that Jesus Christ paid for that sins and we can move on. It's been let go. Now we need to let go. We need to move on. For some of you guys, though, I'd say on a flip side, for some of you guys, as you think about this arena, it's not that you think about your mistakes, but for some of y'all, y'all think about mistakes that were done to you. For some of y'all, it's not that you were the culprit in something, but you were the victim. I know for a lot of you guys, as you look back at your past, there are moments and there are issues and there are moments in your background and your past that you were utterly ashamed of, that you feel so guilty of, and that you had nothing to do with it someone who was older, someone that you should have been able to trust, took advantage and walked through something in your life in a way that you could never have imagined and you've never gotten past. And one of the things I want to say to you guys this morning is as you move toward marriage, some of you guys have said, that's not even going to be for me. I want nothing to do with sexuality. If this is what's going to be, if this is what I experienced. And one of the things I want to plead with you guys this morning is this, invite someone in to share your story too. As you keep that thing buried away, it becomes a prison that encapsulates you. And you've got to open the door and not necessarily walk through, but invite someone to walk in so they can know what's happened. And until you're able to do that, you're going to stay stuck in a spot, unable to move forward, unable to really get a sense of all that God intended this sexual experience to be, when all you can see and all you've experienced so far is utterly hurt, utterly shame, utterly the kind of thing that you never could have imagined from the people that you love most or you trusted most. And for some of y'all, if that's you this morning, let me just say, please come talk to one of us. Please come grab us. Please take the courage this week, whether it's one of us on staff, whether it's myself, my wife, any of us on staff, or there's just a close friend that you would finally pull someone aside this week and say, hey, I've got to bring someone into this to know. 
It's just sitting here in the midst of my soul as a, as a weight that is just holding me down for all that I think of in terms of the opposite sex, all I think about in terms of marriage, all I think about in terms of sex. It's completely scarred and, scur- and obscured because of this experience. And to the degree that you can't invite someone into that, it will be the degree that it will continue to be a burden that is not allowing you to experience the kind of freedom that you can experience. I can't even imagine where some of you guys have walked and so what some of you guys have experienced. It breaks my heart. It does. And my hope for you guys is that you'll invite someone in, that you'll trust someone enough to say, hey, man, will you pray for me? Will you help me to begin to process this? Because there's a healing that has to occur for you. And for some of you guys, the healing process, I will promise you and I will tell you up front, it is painful and it is hard. My prayer and my hope for you guys this week, looking into this week and to this morning, was that you guys would have the courage to begin that process today, this week. That you'd let someone in knowing that it's going to be a challenging process, but it's one that you've got to walk through. Otherwise, you're going to walk through life in some ways impaired, not experiencing the kind of freedom, the kind of healthy sexuality that God intended and wants for you. My hope and my heartbeat for you guys is that this week might be an opportunity that you could invite someone into that and someone could begin to walk in and through that with you. Trust me that someone who knows you and who loves you, when you open that chapter of your past, your life, they're not going to run away. They're going to open their arms and they're going to step right into your world and they're going to love you in a way that you've never imagined someone could. They're not going to be freaked out. And so please take the courage, take the step this week, begin to talk to somebody. Begin that process this week so that you can, as you move toward the future, God can begin to bring about a healing and a restoration that you need and that you're looking for and that's so desperately important. For some of you guys, let me kind of give you guys another idea, another uh, concept about marriage. Some of you guys think in terms of your own struggle with purity, you think that marriage is going to fix it, all right? Uh, Once you get married, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be easy. And I will tell you as a married guy, that is not true. Marriage does not make a challenge with pornography or challenge with purity go away. If anything, marriage helps you realize how deeply that struggle runs. And so for some of you guys and girls, I want to say in the midst of a challenge with purity, whether that's online or whether that's in a relationship, the time is now to begin to grow in discipline, to persevere, and to walk in purity, all right? Uh, It is not an unnecessary process now. It is actually a process as you grow in purity and perseverance that will serve you as you resist sin in marriage, but also even as you experience sex in marriage, all right? Uh, A healthy sex life will have a high level of perseverance, a high level of humility, a high level of discipline, all right? And so for many of us, we think that those attributes are something that are all about resisting sin. I'm going to tell you guys, as you grow in those, you are preparing for an incredible sex life in marriage, all right? It is not unnecessary. It is not wasted experience to be resisting sin, learning how to do that, growing in that now as you look toward marriage. Marriage will still have a battle with sin and those attributes as they grow, that kind of character, that kind of perspective will serve you incredibly well in marriage, all right? So be growing in discipline now. You are growing and you are training for the kind of sex life that will be fulfilling, that will be satisfying, that will be all that God intended it to be and all that you can dream it to be as you walk and as you strive in purity now. Fourthly, let me challenge you guys to worship the giver of sex and not sex itself, all right? Uh, I I will tell you guys, I think for some of us, we think about sex as this meal that is not going to be, that we're going to get to participate in a long time, and all we can think about is the meal, right? I'll tell you guys, this may be kind of weird for you ladies, all right? But some guys I've actually heard say, I'm totally fine if Jesus Christ comes back in the rapture as soon as it's after my honeymoon, all right? (laughs) 
It's like there's this experience they want to have, but as soon as it's happened, then God's cosmic purposes for all of human history can then be fulfilled. That's okay, all right? And I think for some of us, as we wait on this great gift, we begin to wait even with an idolatrous heart. One of the things I want to challenge you guys to in the midst of the present is that you would be growing in your worship of the giver of sex and not the gift of sex, even as you wait for it. Are you growing in your knowledge of who God is? Are you growing, growing in your affections and your love for who he is right now? Even as you wait for something that will be great in the future. Some of us can wait in a way that actually is idolatrous. And what I want to challenge you guys to do is to wait and growing in your worship of him who's given a gift that is not going to fix you, not going to complete you. I promise even once you guys get into marriage, you're going to realize it is a great thing, but it is not the end all be all of life. All right? Life goes on, right? But God is the one who ultimately can provide all that you're hoping life, marriage, and maybe even sex can provide. Don't miss the one who ultimately provides those things as you wait on what you think is going to be amazing. Lastly, and we'll end here, this idea. Begin to serve, encourage, and know the opposite sex equally, all right? I think for many of us, we think, hey, this whole arena of our sexuality, we'll just kind of bury, repress, and then once we get married, we'll flip a switch, and then we'll learn how to encourage, know, serve the opposite sex, all right? I'll tell you guys, one of the greatest benefits for me as I walked out of college was I had an incredible set of relationships and friendships with the opposite sex, all right? I I knew how to serve, how to encourage, how to understand, and how to listen to sisters I had in the body of Christ. And that was an amazing skill set, an amazing opportunity. I walked into marriage understanding better how women think and how they work. One of the greatest opportunities you guys have in the body of Christ as you walk through college is you have an opportunity to know, to serve, and to encourage the opposite sex and do it equally, right? Do it without favoritism. Do it without distinction. Do it because you want to serve and you want to know. Uh, these are brothers and sisters you have in Christ in terms of this community, and you have an awesome opportunity to know them, to serve them, and in that you are pursuing and pushing forward in a sense in this arena. It is vital as you step into marriage that you know how to communicate, you know how to uh, encourage, you know how to listen, you know how to serve, and you don't just start that process in marriage. You start the process today. You start the process this phase of your life is an awesome opportunity as you walk in maturity in the midst of interpersonal relationships to know, serve, and encourage the opposite sex today. And as you do that, you're actually not denying your design. You're enhancing it, stepping towards it, and beginning to live it out in a way that God is beginning to shape, prepare, grow, and mature you in very healthy ways that are not devoid of sexuality, all right, but are connected and relevant to it. And as you do that without distinction, without favoritism, you have an opportunity really to show honor toward the opposite sex that God has created in his image. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to have an opportunity to just kind of wrap up. And we've kind of gone a little bit long. And so I want to challenge you guys as, we, as the band comes up and kind of leads us through one song as we kind of close out this morning. Is I want you guys to have an opportunity to just come before our king. To come before him and to recognize how great, how majestic, and how beautiful he is. That he's not just the giver of sex, but he's the giver of every good gift who's designed you in a way that you do not have to bury, repress, or avoid for right now. But he's called you to live that out. He's called you to walk that out. He's called you not to feel guilty about it, but to know him through it and to honor him in it. And that's my heartbeat for you guys. And so hopefully you guys have a chance to come before him and just to let him do business with you however he will, wherever he wants to lead you guys. That's my hope and my heartbeat for you guys. Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize you are beautiful. You are the giver of every good gift that comes from down. And Lord, we just want to say thank you. 
We want to thank you for all that you've done in our lives, all that you've provided us. And I pray in this arena, Lord, we thank you that your grace extends beyond anything we can imagine. That even where there's guilt, even though there's things that we cannot let go, that you say, no, no, I've died for that. I've been resurrected because I can defeat that. And I pray that you would give us incredible hope this morning. Incredible hope of a future and a next relationship that can look very different than anything in our past. Because you are good, you are faithful, you are powerful. Father, I pray that you would resurrect for us our view of sex. That you will help us to see it in a whole different light as you intended it to be. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Guys, great seeing y'all this morning. We'll see you guys next week. Y'all have a wonderful week, all right?